For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Early voting for Super Tuesday is already taking place as Oklahoma Republicans and Democrats decide who they want to represent their party in the presidential race. While there's not much of a question on the Republican side where President Trump will get the nomination, the big question is on the Democratic side. Ryan, what do you think of this election? I mean, I think Sanders is the clear frontrunner at this point. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in spite of the Democratic Party establishment and some of the media establishment that are doing everything they can to generate this this uh, this cognitive feedback loop of, of, of freakouts and paranoia, uh, Bernie Sanders is in a clear position to win the nomination, and he seems to demonstrate time and again in national polls and in battleground state polls that he is the clear uh, front runner to beat Donald Trump come November. Uh, I suspect that the the ground game that he's had in Oklahoma over the last four years uh, will you know lead to either a victory or a, a significant number of delegates out of Oklahoma. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg has spent a ton of money here. I mean, uh, kind of an an, an absurd amount of money uh, in the in the last bit. He's uh, I think got. Uh, 30 staffers on the ground thereabouts in Oklahoma, uh, each making you know, quite a bit of money, and they're you know generating a lot of phone calls, a lot of doors being knocked. It'll be interesting to see what you can buy with that. I mean, that's kind of what this the Bloomberg experiment is: is you know what can you buy mm-hmm. with that kind of an investment in Oklahoma? Um, and then you know one of the things to think about too is that Oklahoma again, I think, will uh, lend its delegates the majority of its delegates to Bernie Sanders. But now there's this talk at the national level of a majority of superdelegates frustrating the intent of a majority of voters out of these Democratic caucuses and primaries. Oklahoma's superdelegates, you know, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. Are, are they going to honor the will of the voters or are they going to do something to frustrate uh, a Sanders nomination at the Democratic convention? Neva. Well, superdelegates have frustrated the, the, the process. They're Almost without exception. And, uh, but I think the, I think the interesting thing will be Super Tuesday this year versus four years ago. Yeah. I mean, there, there is this, there are all kinds of scenarios, obviously, that, uh, that the Democrat pollsters and pundits are, are putting forth. And when you look at states like Oklahoma, like you say, I mean, we now have uh, what uh, four years ago was kind of a runaway best best state for Sanders in mm-hmm. terms of, of the margin. Now we have a situation that uh, most predict that it's going to be uh, very clustered with Sanders, Biden, and uh, uh, uh Bloomberg, Bloomberg, Bloomberg. and Bloomberg, as you say, having put this uh, enormous kind of everything on the table, spending 400 million plus in these Super Tuesday 14 states uh, to see whether or not he can kind of disrupt the whole uh, kind of the whole uh, uh, apple cart and see if he can really be part of the equation moving toward the uh, the nomination. So I think there are a lot of things that are in play here. And when you look at the threshold, the fact that uh, in many of these southern states, Sanders has not done well in the past. Uh, he seems to have some better uh, better numbers developing in, in a few of the, the few of the southern states, but we also have uh, Biden and Bloomberg uh, clearly advancing, and and we have uh, and we have the uh, the uh, added factor of you have home states for Warren or adopted home state of Massachusetts, uh, Klobuchar with her uh, home state of Wisconsin. All of these in play uh, next Tuesday, so I think it's going to be I think it's going to be fascinating. And when you do the math, they have to get. Past this fifteen percent, 
15% threshold uh, to be able to garner votes in, in these states. And I think that's where, you know, literally you can have folks not win any states, but get enough delegate votes at the end of the day mm-hmm. on Tuesday to really be in play and be a factor. I'm, the, the biggest, the biggest uh, kind of uh, state on the, on the board for Sanders is the fact that he seems to be running away with California. And yeah. obviously that's where the lion's share of the uh, delegate votes are on Tuesday. This reminds me a lot of... Uh, actually four years ago uh, in the Republican side where a lot of people were saying, well, Donald Trump's, you know, we, we can't, he's too extreme. He's too extreme. We got to have some more moderates and, or, or someone to take the, the, the never Trumpers to come in and, and try and stop him. And on the Sanders side, yeah. that's the exact same news I'm hearing. It's, oh, he's too far to the left. He's too far to the left. We got to have moderates to try and stop it. And, you know, and Sanders addressed this at the debate earlier this week where he said, you know, these idea, the idea that I'm radical is just, just doesn't bear out. We're, what I'm pushing for, or what he's pushing for, what Senator Sanders is, Senator Sanders is pushing for, are pro- programs and proposals that are enacted in most developed countries around the world. I mean, universal health care, universal education, universal higher education. You know, these are things that uh, exist everywhere else. Coming out, we talked last week about what was going to happen going into Nevada, and Sanders, you know, a runaway, and a runaway in a big way with a crowded field, not just two folks like four years ago, but a runaway, and, uh, and he did that among every demographic. If he can sustain that growing his and broadening his base to all of those demographics coming out of Super Tuesday, I think it would be very difficult for the Democratic Party to say no to his nomination. Well, but when you look at the numbers, again, going back looking at the math, by most predictions, Sanders coming out of Super Tuesday may have uh, somewhere pushing up on 600 delegate votes, but you're also going to have the potential with Biden at least having half of that, maybe 300 votes, and and Bloomberg having a couple of hundred votes, and then everyone else having their little piece of the of the pie. Uh, Warren uh, at this point is even projected to have over 100 delegate votes. So it does kind of put it in play, and it sets up for a contested, you know, for a contested mm-hmm. convention uh, if this continues. Because what you've got is this battle: do do the Democrats want to go with a socialist nominee, or do they want to go with a billionaire nominee, or do they want to go with a moderate? in in political terminology of somewhere in between. And does that become Biden? There's still a lot of uh, very smart uh, uh, Democrat uh, pollsters and politicians that suggest that when you look at the math, Biden is certainly not out of the equation. And I think we see that even in Oklahoma with him and Bloomberg uh, right on the heels of Sanders. Sanders having had the organization still in place for the last four years, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to be at a place where he's able to break out of the pack, even among the likely Democrats who will go to the polls on Super Tuesday here. Boy, a brokered convention would be a disaster for Democrats and a gift to President Trump. But of course, they were also talking about this last that four years ago. That was this it, when it was Oklahoma's time to do it. They were talking about, oh, is it going to be a brokered convention for the Republican Party? Is it going to be? I mean, it was all, it was the exact same thing. By exact the time same you got to thing, June, but I think you though, had a, it had already been decided. And I, and I think that I think that well could be the case. But you have a lot of really interesting dynamics with the uh, with these major uh, candidates in the field and what they bring to the table and where they move forward past Super Tuesday. And I think uh, what Ryan said at the top about the fact that it ultimately, on the second or third ballot, I mean, the wild card of this infusion of these folks that that could very well decide the nominee, whether, you know, yes, Bernie Sanders has made it pretty clear, hey, this is not a fair game. I don't want this to happen because he sees what can happen, and that is he could be denied the nomination. So uh, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a fight that clearly everyone is ready for and not going to give up an inch until it's all said and done. It confirmed a lot of folks' suspicions that the system is rigged by a bunch of elites. If, yeah. if, the, if the superdelegates do that, I think, again, disaster for the Democratic Party. 
The leader of the Senate Appropriations Committee is calling on the Attorney General to make a ruling about the governor's handling of tribal money expected to go to education. Senator Roger Thompson wants to know if Governor Stitt has the authority to put funds in escrow rather than depositing them in 1017 coffers. Neva, do you believe the governor can put the money in escrow? I think this is the question, and it's been kind of the lingering question, is uh, uh, if, if in fact, uh, is the authority there to do that? And if, uh, if, in fact, those funds are used at some point, does it acknowledge that the compacts automatically did renew on January 1? So, you know, we're back to this, we're back to this continuing debate and now in mediation of trying to determine what is the bottom line and can we get some uh, uh, can we get some resolution on this and and when you're talking about money that that heavily impacts the budget uh, in a year when we're now I mean you know it, the the kind of the doom and gloom is setting in because the numbers are certainly not only looking at this year being flat but looking toward the future I mean these are big questions and I think uh, I think it is like any any question that a lawmaker asks the attorney general, I mean, the attorney general will respond uh, as he should in uh, making some opinion on, giving an opinion on this uh, so that uh, those that are in the legislative uh, branch can figure out what they want to do moving forward. Right. And, and I think, you know, Neva's right. We're, we're really kind of on, on the verge of uh, a potential budget meltdown, not just for this year, but for next year. I mean, if you, if you look at those estimates that came back on income tax in particular, uh, if you look at the revenues that are coming, I mean, we have even really begun to see the downturn in gross production taxes uh, from the drop in oil prices and the lower rig count that we have in Oklahoma right now. That's probably, you know, five to eight months out in terms of the actual impact on state budgets. So we are in this this crisis mode. Everybody's trying to figure out what to do. Senator Thompson, uh, this is an incredibly smart move by him to put this to the attorney general and ask this question because, you know, frankly, as the chair of appropriations uh, in the state Senate, he has an obligation to follow the law. I mean, he gets to put together. He has a ton of discretion to put together that budget uh, to present to to the chair, to the appropriations committee, uh, and to the full Senate, and to negotiate with the governor and the House. But you still have to comply with the law. And if you, if you look at the law, it says that that money shall go to the education fund. I mean, there's there's really it's not may. It's not it it shall go if it just says shall. Uh, and so there doesn't seem to be a lot of wiggle room for Senator Thompson or the governor or anyone else to do anything with that money but to deposit it in the 1017 Education Fund. Well, yeah. it, the, 10, 7, the 1017 Education Fund, the 88% right. that goes to that, right. but you have 12% that goes to the general mm-hmm. yeah. general fund mental and health. then the 250000 annually that goes to the Department of Mental Health. So, I mean, there are, you know, there are the multiple factors yeah. that in play as well. And the budget that's come, that's come out, the alloc- the alloc- what the uh, t- tax commission has said is, that includes the tribal funds. So though, so if you take that out, all of a sudden you're out all that money that's already been allocated. So you're not just an $85 million shortfall. You're a lot more. And than- I, you know, I get what the governor's coming from here. The governor's position here is a uh, litigation strategy. It's part of a litigation strategy. They're, they're concerned that if they accept the money and deposit it where the law says that it has to go, that it's an admission that the compact's yeah. renewed. Right. I mean, so they, that's what it is. I mean, I, but your litigation strategy still has to comply with the law. I think that it's going to be really hard for the attorney general to come up with a way uh, for the governor to be able to do this because, you know, frankly, uh, that would require the attorney general to to make an official to have an official opinion from his office 
that the compacts did not renew. And uh, Attorney General Hunter bowed out of these compact negotiations well before uh, the renewal date. And I think that he did that on purpose. And now I think he's going to be reluctant to jump right back into it. Well, and we know that uh, the push is on for the end of next month to have some mm-hmm. yeah. resolution from the mediation standpoint. And, uh, you know, he's not on any hard timeline in terms of getting this opinion back. Obviously, there's this sense of urgency on the part of lawmakers. But but all of these things uh, ultimately have to kind of uh, correspond, at least on some timeline, or, or we're at this impasse where we are still today. Mm-hmm. Governor Stitt signs his first bill of 2020. House Bill 1230 increases transparency of the Lindsay Nicole Henry Scholarship by requiring the Department of Education to publish information on recipients of the private school vouchers. Stitt added an executive order requiring the agency to adhere to federal privacy laws. Ryan, what do you think of the bill and the executive order? I think that the bills welcome transparency into the way that uh, public funds would be going into private schools. I mean, the the voucher program and voucher programs in general are, are often plagued by a lack of transparency. There's a lack of transparency and accountability that comes along with knowing where the money's going, how it's being spent, how the programs are being administered. So, you know, this was, if you look at the votes on this, I don't think, I, I uh, don't remember, but I don't remember a single no vote. I think that this was uh, a pretty, uh, you know, straightforward piece of legislation that made its way to the governor's desk, uh, uh, you know, fairly quickly. Uh, this legislative session, the Oklahoma Education Association supported it. It had broad, broad support. But the executive order is incredibly important because if you if you read the actual language of the bill, some of the stuff that it says that, that has to be reported on this website includes identifying information about these students. And uh, if if read uh, you know just as a you know black and white uh, letter of law without that executive order, it could be a, a requirement. Uh, that these schools publish information that then would put them in conflict with the federal law mm-hmm. of identifying private student information on a website, on a public website. So the executive order is important. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see any issue with uh, with the implementation of that. And I don't think that any school is going to uh, try to you know do anything against that executive order. It would have been nice if they would have caught it in the legislative process. <laughs> but, you know, a bill that, you know, <coughs> lands on your desk with that much support, it's hard to veto and send it back, especially when you think you can correct it with an executive <laughs> order. Certainly, Neva, it's a far cry from his first bill last year. <laughs> Uh, which was, of course, the <laughs> permitless a- carry bill. But but uh, it seemed to, yeah, have pretty wide support. Absolutely. And, and and this is a scholarship program that's had wide bipartisan support from the get-go. I mean, in 2010, when it passed, uh, and we now see that there are more than 1,000 scholarship recipients recipients across Oklahoma. Um, uh, the uh, cost about $7.4 million, I think it is. And we have 67 private schools that have been approved for this program. And uh, and I think that we see that this is something that has uh, uh, received broad support uh, among parents across the state of Oklahoma. Obviously, right now, the concentration is uh, heavily in the metropolitan mm-hmm. areas where these schools are located. But I think that uh, the governor, uh, by his tone and by the executive order, uh, certainly uh, put an emphasis on this. And I think the fact that uh, the first bill to be signed this year being uh, a bill that's education related on this particular uh, uh, scholarship program is significant. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation is looking into a charter school accused of illegally accessing and sharing confidential student information. 
The OSBI received information regarding Dove Charter School after a third party allegedly used the student data to send out mailers to more than 100,000 fifth and sixth graders. Neva, your thoughts on this investigation? Well, I, I mean, it, it's somewhat incredible. I mean, when you when you hear uh, kind of more and more of this story come out uh, and the the response basically that they, you know, they made this mistake and yes, maybe uh, in hindsight it shouldn't have gone to the kids, it should have gone to the parents and on and on. I mean, the bigger issue is exactly what happened in terms of this breach. The fact that you had letters go out to these fifth and sixth grade students uh, inappropriately and the fact that you had uh, not only that take place, but you had a third party vendor uh, who had access then to that list. They say the list was mailed and then destroyed. I mean, you have to, uh, again, I mean, that now is being taken at least at this moment, uh, appears on face value. But I mean, it opens up uh, Pandora's box in terms of not only this single event, but what what it, what it speaks to the bigger issue uh, across the board when we talk about uh, access to uh, the, to these student records uh, and how they're how they're used and now we've got it mired up in accusations and and uh, the OSBI being involved and just uh, uh, is something that is certainly not going to be resolved anytime quickly and I think it's unfortunate but I think it is incumbent upon everyone to make sure that they get a resolution to this as quickly as possible and hopefully before the end of the school year yeah, right Good job to the State Department of Education. I mean, they they operated so fast in this, uh, took all of the appropriate measures that they needed to do to lock down uh, further breaches of uh, student information to make sure that they were trying to protect it as best as they could, and then to begin to prosecute the uh, the, the claim against Dove Charter Schools. I mean, that's there's uh, a lawsuit. From I mean, the yeah, there's a lawsuit. I mean, all of those things may seem kind of extreme and over the top, but the State Department of Education checked every single box that they needed to check to make sure that they had both the authority and the means uh, to protect student data from from further breaches. That uh, student information, those student records, they can only be accessed by educators to further an educational purpose. And here, what we saw was just you know you know marketing. I mean, it was just used for pure marketing. And they can say that it was careless. They but it was marketing and the idea that you would access student information, even student information, it's even more troubling. It'd be troubling if it was just their own students to, to access your own students for marketing, but they access student data outside of their own system, uh, trying to recruit students to their school uh, for marketing purposes. That's incredibly troubling. And you've got to think that if you're an administrator at a school, the you, know, you, you should have uh, at the very least, and uh, some some knowledge about how you can and can't use that information. So, they're saying that it's careless. I think that uh, you know the Dove Charter School is being represented by former Attorney General Drew Edmondson. He seems to think that he's saying that he thinks that it's going to be resolved amicably. Uh, you know that that may be the case, um, but you know right and now and there appears to be an yeah. effort in terms of them voluntarily yeah. uh, agreeing to a temporary order and some of right. the things that they've initiated on Dove, the part of Dove yeah. uh, does does speak to the fact that the that there is at least the willingness. I mean, it it is not an intractable situation. Yeah. They are all. Uh, at least give the appearance of trying to work through this, work through this, and get uh, get an amicable resolution as quickly as possible. Yeah. Dubs really throwing themselves on the mercy of uh, of the state here. And there are bills out there right now that are uh, that are about restricting marketing from charter schools, marketing and advertising. You can't use state. Do you how do you think that this will maybe help boost those bills to basically say, yeah, we support this because we've seen what happens when you have a marketing that goes like that. Well, I think I think part of it is uh, being clear on what uh, what uh, they're using in terms of mm-hmm. the uh, the records and the data. I mean, there's information out there that they can access legally, legitimately 
really anyone uh, in terms of marketing. So, uh, I mean, the idea that this is just a, a, a prospect of just shutting this down and, and there's never going to be communication, there's never going to be uh, uh, advertising and an effort to uh, uh, solicit uh, parents uh, to take a look at the, that these other options for education uh, is certainly not the case. But I think in the instance of this, there are many other issues that are much more uh, important that have uh, that have consequences not only for this charter school or or but many of the others uh, that need to equally know what the what the rules are going to be and make sure that they abide by them completely. A judge dismisses the lawsuit brought by Epic Virtual Charter School against a state lawmaker. Epic was seeking $75,000 in damages over claims of libel and slander from Senator Ron Sharp. However, the judge ruled the school failed to prove actual malice in the case. Ryan, can you explain what the judge was talking about here? Well, actual malice is an element that you have to be able to demonstrate whenever you are claiming libel against speech against a public figure or a public organization. And they just couldn't find that here. I really don't know what Epic's anticipation <clears throat> of, of this lawsuit was to begin with. I just, uh, you know, they claim 75000 uh, in excess of $75,000 of damages. It's unclear how they were going to prove that. You know, frankly, this is the, the best win uh, that Epic Charter Schools could have hoped for because <laughs> if this had proceeded to trial, Senator Sharp could have used the tools of discovery mm -hmm. to go after Epic Charter Schools to get depositions, to get records that he currently doesn't have access uh, with, access to through open records requests, through his legislative authority. You know, the idea that Epic, I, I don't know if they were trying to make a political point, because uh, that seems to be what it really was here, using the judicial system to make a political point against a political opponent. Um, it's just a terrible way to go about it. I, I, I think that, uh, again, this was the best, uh, it was good for Senator Sharp to have it dismissed, but Epic should be the really ones, you know, popping champagne over at their headquarters because they just dodged a bullet. And even, I know Ron Sharp is a, is a client of yours, but uh, he was actually saying that this was, uh, it was made to intimidate him, that he was, it was to try and silence him. Well, I mean, if, if you look at the timeline, I mean, yeah. the, the uh, governing board of Epic uh, back in October uh, voted to take the legal action, but it wasn't until late November, only four days before the deadline for bills mm -hmm. uh, to be uh, uh, to, to be put in the hopper that they actually filed the lawsuit. So timing, I mean, certainly, I mean, anyone can step back and look at that. It raises some questions. But the bigger issue, I think, that was uh, uh, finally resolved or it, by, by the judge is the fact that this is core political speech, which was mm -hmm. uh, Senator Sharp's uh, attorney's argument that, uh, that he's a public official. He was talking about actions that he is a senator involved in with, uh, with, the, uh, with his role in, in as a lawmaker and talking about an uh, talking about education, he's a career educator by background uh, before coming to the to the state senate. So I think that I think that it was a win. Uh, it was a win uh, for the right reasons. Uh, but people need to understand that you don't give up uh, certain rights just because you add a, a add a, a title in front of your name and become someone who is uh, a, a lawmaker. And I think in this instance, uh, that was much of what was involved here. Is this just uh, this this war of words and this and this uh, disagreement, uh, a very vehement disagreement between uh, Epic and Senator Sharp on uh, some of the things that were uh, transpiring that he had disagreements with. And this is a very basic First Amendment ruling. So I mean, really, the, the winner is us because our First Amendment rights were basically right. upheld by the the, the, the the courts. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's. But I'm kind of surprised that the judge got to the First Amendment uh, to got to the First Amendment analysis uh, as the basis for her ruling because to me, uh, you know. 
know, generally a judge doesn't want to touch on a constitutional issue. They want right. to, they want, they want to touch they on want to some, find the, yes, they want to, they want to find the, the narrowest ground to rule on. And here legislative immunity for speech, uh, during legislative, uh, activity to me seems to be the, the more appropriate way to, to rule here because, you know, what Senator Sharp was doing was a basic function of a state legislator. And whether you agree with what he was saying about uh, Epic Charter Schools or not, the way that you hold him accountable for that kind of speech uh, against an organization that receives millions of dollars from the state of Oklahoma, the way you hold him accountable for that is at the ballot box. Now, if mm-hmm. Senator Sharp you know, found some constituent in his district uh, that he just really didn't like, and he started putting press releases out, uh, just targeting that person for libel and slander. This is a public entity. But this is a public entity. Right. They're getting, uh, you know, they're getting our tax dollars. State legislators, again, whether you agree with them or not, they should have uh, that kind of power to be able to speak about those things, to investigate about those things. And if you don't like it, you hold them accountable at the ballot box. You don't try to intimidate them with lit- uh, with litigation and lawsuits. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.